Go ahead and grab your Bible and turn to the book of Daniel, uh, where the question we'll be looking at this morning is this. Um, How do you maintain your faith in a culture that wants to destroy your faith? Uh, That's where Daniel and his friends find themselves. Um, If you weren't here with us last week, here's a quick recap. Uh, Daniel and his friends grew up in a culture that was really shaped around the God of the Bible. And so when they went to school, they were taught the Bible. When they went to parties, all the food that was available was set up in such a way to help them see themselves as a distinct people belonging to the God of the Bible. Um, All of the greatest festivals and sites in the land of Israel, well, all of that was really to celebrate the God of the Bible and what he had done in history. And and even the laws in this nation, the laws were set up, this is going to blow your mind, the laws were set up in such a way to encourage you to actively live out your faith. And so this is where Daniel and his friends grow up. But then one day, The Babylonian army comes to town and they destroy everything. They destroy the city of Jerusalem. They destroy God's temple. They destroy life as these young men had known it. And they carry them 900 miles north to the city of Babylon. Where um, not only did the encouragement to love and worship and serve God stop. But they began to be actively pressured to adopt a new set of gods, a new set of morality, and to see their lives in a new way. And so the question is, how do you maintain your faith in that kind of environment? Because I think we all know something of this pressure, don't we? See, if, if you're a follower of Jesus and you live in this valley... Then, then, man, you live under incredible pressure just like these guys. Some of you are like, that's what he's trying to sing, under pressure. Da, 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 da. We live under incredible pressure just like these guys, and, and the pressures for us are really similar. Um, last week, we looked at three things that King Nebuchadnezzar did to try to pressure to assimilate these guys to the values of Babylon. Um, number one, he put him in the Babylonian education system. Uh, to say, oh man, the Bible, you guys really teach the Bible? Man, you really trust that old book? No, 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 you got to read our literature. This is hip, this is with it, this is sophisticated stuff, so read our literature. And then number two, he whined and dined them. Um, Quite literally, I'm trying to kind of numb these guys to what was going on and to get them to be maybe a little bit more compliant, to get their guard down. And then number three, he, he gave them new names which maybe that doesn't sound like a big deal at first to you, but we talked last week about the power that language has to shape our understanding of reality. Um, This is why I think even in our world today, there's so much fighting going on over defining certain words and what certain words mean, because I think we all understand that language has a great ability to shape our understanding of reality. And so the pressures we're under, it's really similar. It starts off subtle at first with a new kind of food, with a new education system, with new definitions of words and meanings. And and it can seem like sometimes there's really only two ways to relieve that constant pressure. Um, The first way is you can compromise. Um, Think about it for Daniel and his friends. Um, If they would just go along with the ways of Babylon, if they would just 
take on the new names, take on the new values, take on the new gods and kind of go with the flow, how much easier would their lives be if they just said, sure, whatever, if this is, if this is what's considered socially acceptable, we're in. Their lives would not only be easier, but in fact, they are in a position where if they would just go with the flow, they could be in a position of influence in Nebuchadnezzar's government. And and so maybe they could do some good for the Hebrew people if they would just compromise a little bit, go along with the flow, kind of wink, wink, nudge, nudge, and and go the way of the prevailing culture. Um, It's a real temptation to these guys, and it's a real temptation to you and to me to compromise um, in your workplace, um, with your friends, in other relationships, to, to forget about what God has said, just go the way of the prevailing culture, to go with the flow and to not make any rifts. Um, this is a pressure that I think we all feel, and it's not just us individually, this is a pressure that churches are feeling in this valley, um, where the, pr- the cultural pressure on the church right now is just un- unreal. And I know there are parts of the world that have it worse, but this is a unique situation in our country where the pressure, particularly around issues of gender and sexuality, is unreal. And so what you have is there are some churches that are kind of reading the tea leaves, they're feeling the pressure, and they say, okay, well, the, the only way that we're going to stay relevant is if we would just kind of get with the times and go with the flow and give Jesus a little makeover here. We'll still do the Jesus thing, but we're not going to do all the Jesus thing. We're just going to pick and choose the parts of the Bible that we like. And, and, and the problem with that is when you compromise your faith, you leave the real, resurrected, living Jesus behind, and all you're left with is a bad knockoff of the culture around you. So you get these Safeway Select churches that like are preaching all the same stuff as the culture. They sprinkle a little Jesus on top and then the music is just a little bit worse than it is in the culture. Um, Not here. The music was awesome today, guys. Thank you so much for leading us in that. Um, um, But that's one temptation. And and, and so people see that and they go, well, I don't want to be a bad Safeway Select version of the culture. And so they'll go the other way and withdraw. Where you say, this place is crazy. I'm moving to Idaho. And, and, and if you can't do that, um, then what you do is you just kind of withdraw from the culture here and you try to form your own subculture where you just kind of become this crusty person that's always complaining about how crazy the world is, how backwards it all is. And, and look, that's not a great option either. You're leaving something of Jesus behind if you're always a bad news person and you're always crusty and complaining and and you're pulling away from the people that need God most. You leave Jesus behind there. And so look, some days it can feel like these are the only options. You can compromise or you can grow crusty. Here's the good news this morning. There's a third option that we see in the book of Daniel. It is an option that if we would take this option, then the pressure of exile, it actually begins to be used for our good. To like diamonds, it would begin to shape and refine us to where we could shine all the more brightly in this place. You ready to look at it? All right. Daniel chapter 1, we'll pick it up where we left off last week, starting in verse 8. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. 
And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, "Um, I fear my lord, the king, who assigned your food and your drink. For why should he see that you were in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. Then Daniel said to the steward whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, test your servants for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for 10 days. And at the end of 10 days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than the youths who ate the king's food. Quick side note, fatter in flesh is a positive thing at this point in the ancient world. This is, they look healthy. They look great. Verse 16 So the steward took away their food and wine that they were to drink, and he gave them vegetables. And as for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in visions and dreams. At the end of the time, when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar, and the king spoke with them, and among All of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore, they stood before the king. And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king had inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. Um, So what we see in this story is that Daniel chooses to reject the first option of compromise. Uh, We saw it in verse 8. He resolves that he would not defile himself with the king's food and with the wine that he drank. Um, Now, if you ask me, I think that's an interesting place to draw the line. Um, Think about this. He he doesn't say, I won't engage in the secular education. Um, Though he would have to be discerning about it, apparently Daniel uh, is following in the ways of uh, what uh, the church father Augustine would later say. He he had this understanding that all truth is God's truth. And so I'll search out truth. I'll read anything you've got. I'm not afraid of new literature. I'll search out truth wherever it's found because wherever it's found, it belongs to him. And so he doesn't reject the secular education. Um, He doesn't draw the line at the names. Think about this. He let them call him Belteshazzar for the rest of his life, which is a crazy name. Last week, we were like, who's named Daniel in here? And I see Danielle, you're here today. And it, but it's like nobody's named Belteshazzar. For thousands of years, we've gone, Daniel, Danielle, that's a good one. Belteshazzar, we should let that one fall out of the lexicon. He lets them call him by this crazy name. But where he does draw the line in the sand is with the food at the king's table and the wine that he drank. That's where he draws the line in the sand and says, okay, I'll go through the secular education system. I'll let you call me after a demon god. But where I draw the line in the sand is this excellent five-star food you've given me. Um, Think about this for a minute. If you were carried away in exile to a foreign land, um, say the Republic of Texas, and, and for three years, you are forced to study rodeos. 
Um, if you're from Texas, I'm not dogging on rodeos. All I'm trying to say is that's foreign to us here, all right? But for three years, you had to study this whole new way of life. By the way, that's your official state sport, so don't at me when you say like, oh, come on, Texans aren't that into it. Our state sport is surfing, yours is rodeo. Again, not passing judgment, just lifting high. So for three years, you have to leave your surfboard behind and study the ways of the rodeo. And everywhere um, you go, uh, you, you get the best barbecue in the land. Amen. And, and, and yet, is, is whenever they call out your order, they call you by the name of a demon god. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm not drawing the line at the beef brisket. You with me on this? Daniel draws the line at the food. The one part of this that I'm like, that seems actually kind of enjoyable. And so the question is, why is this the place he draws his line? Um, And there have been a number of theories that have been suggested to try to explain this. Um, Some say, well, maybe Nebuchadnezzar was a real bacon guy. He had a lot of pork on his table. So um, yesterday, one of my daughters saw a cheeseburger, a bacon cheeseburger, and she said, what's that red stuff on it? I'm not a big bacon guy. I'm like, yeah, I know. It's kind of weird. Some people are into that. Maybe Nebuchadnezzar was into that. He just put bacon on everything. And so for Daniel to eat at his table, well, it, it violates Jewish dietary laws because the people of God under the old covenant were supposed to see themselves as distinct and not eat that like the rest of the world. Um. The problem with that is it says that he would not defile himself with the king's uh, food or with the wine that he drank. This is going to shock some of you. The people of God, particularly in the Old Testament, love their wine. All right? That just got really tense. I'm not telling you what you should think about wine. I'm saying if you read your Bible, there's Psalms that are like, this is great. God is the best for thinking of this. So so you can't say that it's um, Jewish dietary laws because there's no laws against the wine. And the text says the wine's specifically part of the problem. So so that can't be it. Um, Others have suggested that, well, you know, eating is an act of fellowship. And and I think you know this, that um, if you were to share a meal with someone, uh, that's about more than food. Uh, To sit down and enjoy a long dinner together, I mean, that is an act of relationship. And so some have suggested, well, this guy just destroyed God's temple, killed a bunch of Daniel's friends. Daniel wouldn't want to be friends with this guy. And so when he offers the good food, he's like, sorry, I don't like you. I'm not going to be friends with you. Are you kidding me? You just murdered all my buddies. I'm not having dinner with you. Um, The problem with that is if you read ahead in the book, you'll see that Daniel does have fellowship with Nebuchadnezzar and his successors. That he actually wants their good and he gets sad when bad things happen to him. That he draws near to them. He he doesn't hold them in arm's length and say, you're an icky sinner, I'm a good person over here. But that Daniel, much like we would see later in the life of Jesus, he draws near to the most broken. That he is a friend of sinners. And so it really misunderstands the gospel to say that that would be the issue here because the people of God, like our God, move near to the broken. So so it's not that an act of fellowship is the problem. Daniel will fellowship with this guy. Um, One of the more promising solutions that's been suggested is that, um, well, maybe the food was sacrificed to idols. Um, So this is how it worked in the ancient world. The king was really number two in the society. Number one were the gods. And so what would happen is the best food in the land would be sacrificed and offered to the gods. Um, 
And, and then what would happen is after that, that food would come to the king's table. And everyone who sat around the table would enjoy the best food in the land after it had been first offered to the gods. And so some have suggested maybe Daniel didn't want to play a part in the demon religion. It's, it's, it's a lot like um, what you'll see come up in the books of 1 Corinthians and Romans with a couple of churches in the New Testament. And so when I read that, I was like, this is a great thing. It connects the two uh, parts of the Bible. It shows a consistency of thought. Um, the problem is, I also read that in Babylon, the vegetables were sacrificed and offered to the gods as well. Um, apparently Marduk had a thing for kale, which is kind of weird to me, but it's also weird to kill your mom, and that's how Marduk is said to have created the cosmos. So I'm not saying that it's a coherent religious system. I'm just saying that in Babylon, they sacrificed not only meat to the gods, but their vegetables as well. And so if Daniel says, I can't eat the meat, but I'll eat the vegetables, then sacrificing to the gods can't be the issue. And so one by one, you kind of go through all the most promising, and it's like, none of that can be the thing. And I, and I think the key to understanding what's going on here is to read ahead in the book. Um, if you go ahead to Daniel chapter 10, verses 2 and 3, what you will see is that there will come a day where Daniel enjoys the king's meats and his wine. Um, that day comes for Daniel. And so here's what that means. That means that there can't be something inherently problematic about this food and drink. That what this is in Daniel chapter 1 is a temporary fast. Where Daniel says to something that is not inherently evil, I'm going to fast from that for a season. Um, if, if you're new to church, fasting is a practice where uh, we use physical hunger to awaken our spiritual hunger. Um, and if that sounds weird to you, in Christianity, we believe that the Bible and the soul are intimately connected, that what happens in one affects the other. You can't separate the two. You can't tear the two. It's all integrated. And so fasting has always been a key practice of the people of God. And, and it seems like that's what's going on here, where, think about this. Um, for the first time, Daniel and his friends are in this new culture, they're in a new place, and they're being um, tempted to take on new gods and new morality and a new source of truth and a new definition of human flourishing. And, and Daniel seems keenly aware that in this moment, he's going to be tempted to compromise. And so in this moment, he takes the one thing that seems like the best luxury and says, that's something I can't do right now. He does a temporary fast to create something physical in his body to remind him, though all the pressures are trying to make him forget, to remind him of what his real need is. Um, and I'll be honest with you, I've done what they call a Daniel fast before, where for 21 days, um, all you eat are unprocessed things of the earth. And, and so you eat uh, nuts from the ground and vegetables and drink water and there's no spices. There's no nothing to make it more interesting. Just el naturel for 21 days. And here's what I can testify to you. It's miserable. <laughs> it creates a nine. And that's the point because Daniel knows I'm being pressured on all sides. I know that temptation is coming at me from every angle. And so this is not the time when I'm going to play it loose and fast with my spiritual disciplines. He fast 
to create this physical gnawing in his soul to remind him for every ed textbook that says Yahweh didn't make the world, Marduk tearing apart his mama did. Then in his gut, something would tell him, no, nah, that's not true. I know the true story of the world is that God made the world out of love and harmony, and that's our ultimate destiny. And so this is why I think he draws the line here. Not because the food's evil. Um, this is not the sermon to make the argument for the go-raw diet. Uh, you can make that argument. Uh, Karen has acquainted me with some ways of thinking where you could actually argue that, man, if you do this right, actually like letting the meat go could be a really great thing for you if you're into that kind of thing. So, so you can make that argument. Just don't make it from the Bible. Because that's not a biblical argument. What is a biblical argument is to say that prioritizing your relationship with God above all else matters most. And so even when morally neutral things like good gifts, like meat and wine get in the way, then if a relationship with God matters most, if the morally neutral thing is getting in the way, you've got to draw the line and say, I can go no further. And so I just want to ask you this question. Where do you need to draw your line? See, everyone wants to have the faithfulness of Daniel. But, but I would submit to you, there's a reason that this story comes first in the book of Daniel. Um, because before Daniel would go into a lion's den and stare down the jaws of a hungry lion, before Daniel's friends would walk into a fiery furnace and come out unscathed, it all starts in Daniel chapter 1 with the vegan fast. And I love that this story comes first in the book of Daniel because what it's reminding us is that faithfulness to God in the big moments of life starts in faithfulness to God in the everyday moments of life. Because this is where a relationship with the living God is forged. Um, do you think Daniel was just the kind of guy that wasn't afraid of lions? That, that was just no big deal for him? Of course not. Of course he's afraid. But by that point, he had spent literally decades prioritizing his relationship with God, knowing the creator of all things, experienced fullness of life and his presence that can surpass even the food at Nebuchadnezzar's table. And so he knew how good God was after day in and day out, enjoying the presence of the Lord. And so when they throw him in the lines, the most natural thing to do in the world is to go, well, you can throw me in there, but I ain't going to stop praying because I know what I have in him. This is where it all begins. And so, so the question is, where do you need to draw your line? Um, where are the things that are maybe morally neutral in your life? Things that you're feeling defensive right now. Well, hey, pastor, there's no Bible verse against that. Okay, just like there's no Bible verse against this. This is a morally neutral thing. Where maybe there are morally neutral things in your life that are simply, they're just robbing your affections for Jesus. They are numbing your soul. They are numbing your mind to the things of God and leaving you more susceptible to the influence of the pressures of the culture around you. 
I'll tell you what it is for me right now. And I forgot to bring it out here. So everyone just pretend I'm holding up something because it's sitting in my office right now. Do you know what this is? Of course you don't, because I'm pretending. Some of you are like, what is going on here? This was supposed to be an Apple TV. All right? And, and if you know me at all, you know I love Apple. So I don't think that Apple is evil. Um, but, but I will tell you this. Like, I really try to... Um, one of the great joys of my job is I get to sit under the word all week long. And so I have an opportunity for the Holy Spirit to preach to me as I'm in the text. And so as I'm just working through this, I'm like, okay, God, what, what is it for me? What's the morally neutral thing in my life? And there's been a time in my life where it's this, another Apple product. But what the Holy Spirit really began to identify in my life uh, this week is it is just so easy if you don't know what an Apple TV is, it's a, a platform that allows you to stream different services. And, and I don't personally uh, have a cable subscription or any of these services, but I have lots of great friends and family members that share their password with me. And so I could, at the drop of a hat, watch anything that's ever been made on this device. And, and what I've been finding lately is it's just so easy to just, man, life out there is crazy. I don't want to think about the news. I've kind of had to take that out of my diet, which, by the way, I'm a lot happier taking that out. So maybe I'll just watch a little sci-fi where the world is actually worse than it is now, and that'll make me feel better. And it's so easy just to, at the end of a long day, instead of engage with Karen, with others, it's just so easy just to click through. Are you still watching? Anyone have Netflix? Are you still watching? Are you still watching? Are you still watching? It's so easy... To let, and, and, and look, listen, I'm not the anti-TV guy. I'm just not that guy. If you were hoping for a pastor that would say, TVs are evil, get them out of the home, find a new church. I think you can enjoy TV to the glory of God. I'm saying what the Holy Spirit is identifying in me lately is it's not to the glory of God, it's beginning to numb my soul, and maybe it has been for some time. And so I'm going to go on a vegan fast, ironically, from something that's called Apple. Now, I, I don't know what it is for you, but, but here's the question. Here's a great question, I think, that you can discuss in your gospel community this week. Ask this question. What morally neutral things are doling my heart to the Lord? And then, in community, begin to consider, how can you not only fast from that thing, but what could you replace that with that would actually awaken you to the goodness of Jesus and the goodness of the life that he has placed you in. So, so what is numbing you? And then what's your vegetables? What are you going to replace it with for a season? Because if you want to have the faithfulness of Daniel when the lion's den comes, it starts right here with this. By taking our everyday walk seriously and not just trying to get by with the bare minimum of what do I have to do to be a Christian, but taking seriously enough our joy to say, is there anything in my life that's numbing me, that's holding me back from the more that he has for me? And to go on a vegan fast, it's the glory of God. So that's why Daniel draws the line. Um, now I want to talk about how he draws the line, because this is actually important too. Um, look back at verse 8. 
It says, but Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. So there he's rejecting the first option of compromise. He has some convictions. He's not just going to go with the flow. But then watch this. He's going to now reject the second option of withdrawal that we talked about. Look at the back half of the verse. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. See, instead of pulling out of the king's program, Daniel comes to his captors. And and he says, hey, would it be cool with you if I don't defile myself? Do you see the humility in that? See, sometimes I think we think to reject compromise means you have to be a jerk to stand for the truth. And, And what I hope we can see in the book of Daniel is that you can stand boldly for the truth and be humble and kind at the same time. To not go around yelling at everybody, but to ask questions, to be winsome, to be thoughtful, to be creative. And in fact, I would go so far as to say, if you're a jerk, that's going to undermine the truth that you're claiming to stand for. But if you can do it with a humble posture like this, that will do far more to adorn the truth that you're trying to stand for. And look, I... I know it is so easy in a culture that is hostile to our values, um, that calls us backwards and stupid for the things that we believe and says we're not on the right side of history on this issue and this issue. Even if they had to be honest, we were definitely on the right side of these issues over here that they're all thankful for. I know it's so easy in in a culture like that to want to return fire for fire, to want to say, you think I'm backwards? Well, you're named after a demon god. Like, maybe it's just me and that's how my personality works that I'm like, you want to throw flames? I got a flamethrower. It is so easy to fight fire with fire. But let's just have some real talk. What do you gain if you do that? Um, Maybe a sense of superiority for a time. Like, I told them off. I showed them. Maybe, maybe that, probably not even that, but maybe you walk away from Facebook going, man, I really told it to them. But think about what you lose. See, when you fight fire with fire, the best that you could possibly gain is a sense of satisfaction you should be drawing from God, not from sinning against other people. But at worst, you lose that person. The person that God has put in your life to show the beauty of Jesus to, to show the wonder of life in his name. And I don't think that's a win. I'll tell you this. If you're not convinced, let me say this. I've never met the person who said, I was called a Marxist on Facebook, and now I've changed my mind, and I'd like to follow Jesus. I've never met that person. But I have met the person who, like this eunuch, met a humble follower of Jesus who is winsome, who is curious, who was curious enough to understand why would you say no to this thing that's clearly very good, to understand where they're coming from and to engage where they're at. I have met the person like that who met the humble Christian. And through that relationship, God began to work in their lives and win over their hearts. See, the point I'm trying to make is you can't shine like a light in Babylon if all you're known for is pointing out the darkness. 
because that's not what a light does. What a light does is it shines what is good and beautiful and true. And Daniel's a great model for that for us here. Without compromising in any way, he doesn't withdraw from the king's program. He doesn't grow hostile toward it. He comes and he simply asks to work within the system. He says, hey, would it be cool if I don't defile myself? And then when he's like, well, no, that actually would not be cool because you might end up not defiled. I'll end up without a head, and that's not cool for me. And so here's what I love about Daniel. When he gets told no, he doesn't freak out and cry religious liberty, and I have the freedom to do this. He gets creative. He doubles down. He says, okay, I can understand where you're coming from. This king, he just killed a bunch of my buddies. Guy is ruthless. So I could understand why you would fear for your head. Would you be open to this, though? Would you be open to for 10 days? What could happen in 10 days, right? 10 days. Let us just eat vegetables. And I imagine the guy's like, are you sure you want to do that? And he's like, no, really. I believe that my God can work wonders. And somehow, as we stop eating the best foods in the land and start just eating whatever scrounged up off the ground for us, we're going to come out the other side looking better than everybody else. Would you be willing to try it out for 10 days? Do you see the confidence in that? And see, I think that's the real issue. Um, Behind the pseudo-courage of the keyboard warriors, I think, if we could be really honest, it is a lack of confidence in God. Because we spend all of our time focusing on how broken the world is. And so we have to critique that because it freaks us out. And we spend none of our time seeing how great our God is. And and frankly, this is not just, before you amen that and you're like, go get them. Okay, this is not just a problem of those who withdraw. This is the same root issue underneath compromise. Where the people that would say, man, we need to give Jesus a makeover for people to like him. I mean, it's 2022, right? We got to get with the times. Like, how small is your Jesus that he needs you to cover for him? See, this is where they look so different to compromise or to withdraw, but at the end of the day, it's the same root issue. Both options encourage you to look to the culture. One says your culture is king, do whatever it says. The other one says your culture is the enemy, kill it. But both of them encourage us to focus on the culture and take our eyes off Jesus. And if we do Jesus, we just sprinkle a little bit of him on top. And this is where I would submit to you the third option we see in Daniel. The heart of the third option is to get your eyes up on him. to do whatever it takes, to take whatever morally neutral thing is taking your attention and putting it elsewhere and get your eyes up onto him. Because sure, our culture is broken. You'd be crazy to deny that. But what if instead of abandoning it or growing hostile toward it, what if instead we got our eyes up on our resurrected Savior, the one who brings light from darkness, life from death? What if we got our eyes up onto him and asked him to sovereignly use our lives to change it? That's what Daniel does here. He has conviction, but without withdrawing from the program, 
He says, I believe God's going to use me here. And so he humbly engages. He's got his eyes on Jesus, trusting that God's going to do something great. And that is exactly what God does. Uh, Look back again at verse 15. So they, they try out this vegan fast thing. And verse 15, at the end of the 10 days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate at the king's food. So the steward took away their food and wine that they were to drink, that's everybody else, and he gave them vegetables. Um, See, we're going to see in the book of Daniel, Daniel will go into a lion's den and not be mauled. Uh, We are going to see Daniel's friends walk into a fiery furnace and come out unscathed. But that right there, I think, is the most underrated miracle in the book of Daniel. You've got a group of vegans packing on more LBs than the CrossFit guys. It's a miracle. And look, if you're a vegan, I'm not dogging on your lifestyle. All right? If you can uh, enjoy life and flourish without meat, I think that makes you a very interesting person. All right? All I'm saying is if you were eating meat and then you stopped for 10 days, you were not going to pack on the pounds like this. Are you with me? This is a miracle. And it's a miracle that affects the entire city of Babylon. So, so, so Daniel has this courage. He engages winsomely. He gets his eyes up on God. He trusts God to show up, and God shows up. He takes these guys on the vegan fast, and he puts the CrossFit bros to shame. And so then the, the chief eunuch is like, well, if that works for you guys, then nobody gets meat again. Which I got to imagine there's someone that's like, Really? These guys stink. But think about this. Can you imagine? It it says the guy in charge of all of the king's palace took away the meats and the vegetables, or uh, meats and wine and gave them vegetables. Can you imagine if an entire branch of our government just overnight changed their eating habits? That'd be incredible. I mean, first of all, that would mean that they actually agreed on something to do something together. But more importantly, if they were to change how they ate, I mean, think about what that would do to the budget. Think about what that would do to meetings with the people in power. Like, this is a massive cultural shift. Think about how many people are going to go into farming now to produce all of this vegetables for the palace. It's a major cultural shift. And look, you might go, ah, it's just food. It's probably better for them to eat the vegetables than all the fatty stuff at Nebuchadnezzar's table. Okay, here's what I would say. It's not just food. You you can't just say, wow, that's just food. It doesn't actually affect souls. Because if this story was all you had, maybe you could say that. But what we see is this is really only the beginning. Um, After the diet is changed, in the palace, we read in the following verses that God gave not only physical gifts to Daniel and his friends, where they looked stunning after their vegan diet, but he gave them social gifts. Do you notice the refrain in the text that God gave, that God gave, that God gave, that God gave them favor? So God not only gave them the results, he gave them the favor that allowed them to actually try this out in the first place. And and not only uh, physical gifts and social gifts, they also are given spiritual gifts. 
of wisdom and knowledge and the ability to understand and discern and to interpret dreams. These are things that if you're familiar with the book of Daniel, and even if you're not, spoiler alert, these things are going to come up again and again, where next week we're going to see everyone's going to die until Daniel shows up and interprets a dream with the gift that God gave him. And again and again and again, these things are going to come up. These things that God gives them in the opening chapter are going to be used to bless the city of Babylon, to change the culture of the place, to where eventually in the book of Daniel, King Nebuchadnezzar, this wicked, evil, power-hungry man that carried them into exile will get on his knees and praise the God of Daniel as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And eventually, as verse 21 teases for us, it will lead to Daniel outlasting the Babylonian empire itself. This guy, King Cyrus, comes from Persia. Long story short, they're going to come and take over Babylon ruthlessly, just like Babylon did to Jerusalem. And the point by throwing this last little note in there about, oh yeah, when Cyrus came to town, Daniel was still there. What it's telling us is long after Babylon is dead and gone, Daniel makes it through the exile. Because here's the point. While you might look at this chapter and say, man, Daniel is a man of great faithfulness. What Daniel wants you to come away with is that he is a man of even greater blessing. Um, And see, one of the mistakes you could make with the book of Daniel is you could turn this into a hero tale where um, essentially the way I've heard it taught before is to dare to be a Daniel. Um, to, to, to say, I want to be like this guy. I want to love Jesus so much that I'm willing to give up steak for 10 days. I, I want to be like that. And, and, and I'll be honest with you, there are great things that we can learn from Daniel, some of which we saw today. Um, so I'm not dogging on dare to be a Daniel. What I'm saying is if that's the main thing or the only thing you take from this book, you will end up discouraged. Because if you're anything like me, You will have some days where you go faithfully vegan for Jesus. And then you'll have other days where you forget, you grow numb, and you eat a cheeseburger. And so this is why Daniel emphasizes over and over again throughout the book, the point of the book is ultimately to know how faithful his God is. This book isn't just good advice on how to survive exile. That's in there. But it's not the main thing. The main thing is to know the God of Daniel who empowers us and carries us safely through the other side of exile. To where even when you do go into exile, he won't leave you alone to figure it out. He'll go before you and he'll give you favor in the eyes of your captors. To where even before you make a decision to seek him and to lay that morally neutral thing down, he'll go before you to lead you in that way. God's faithful in Daniel chapter 1, and he's faithful throughout the book. When things start going badly for these guys, and Nebuchadnezzar loses his mind and throws them in a fiery furnace, God will go with them there. He will be present in the midst of the fire. And what Daniel says at the very end of, or the end of the opening here is don't forget that he's not only with you in the fire, but one day he will carry you safely through the other side of exile. Babylon might be dark, but his light is brighter. And just like he carried me through, he will carry you through because this is who our God is. 
He is the God who in the fullness of time left his heavenly home and came to our broken world to seek the shalom of this place to seek our peace, to seek our flourishing. And like Daniel, Jesus would be tested to compromise. He'd be tempted to compromise with food at the beginning of his ministry. And like Daniel, the Lord Jesus Christ remains faithful in that temptation and in every other temptation to follow. But where he's unlike Daniel is that Daniel, because of his faithfulness, gets lifted to positions of power and authority in the culture. Jesus Christ, because of his faithfulness, gets nailed to a tree. And on that cross, he would accomplish the victory necessary to unleash God's blessing into our life by dealing with our sin and dealing with every single moment of faithlessness, past, present, and future that you would ever have, that I would ever have in an instant on the cross, he dealt with it all. He gave his life so that like Daniel, we could know the favor of God and be carried safely through the other side of exile where he will meet us again because here's the really good news. He didn't just die to free us from our sin. He rose again and like Daniel outlasted Babylon, Jesus Christ outlasted the empire of Rome, the church of Jesus Christ. Rome is dead and gone as much as they tried to snuff us out. And the church of Jesus Christ continues growing because our king is risen. He is alive. He is on the move in his kingdom. It's an everlasting kingdom and his dominion is an everlasting dominion and his name will be praised forever. And he came into the world so that anybody can get in on this. And he's who the book of Daniel is ultimately about. And so look, I I know the world is getting darker. What this book wants to say without denying any of that is, get your eyes up. Our king is risen. Our king is alive. And just as he showed up in Daniel's day and used that pressure to shape and refine and change that place, he will do it again in our day. So let's get our eyes up on him this morning. We're going to give you some space to do that. I just want to pray for us and ask him to be at work in these things. Jesus, you are the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And we just bow our hearts before you this morning and say, our lives belong to you. Thank you for coming giving your life so that we could get in on this blessing we see in the book of Daniel. Thank you for loving us so much that you take people like us who fail and you gave your life so that you could give us a future that only you deserve. And so I pray for my brothers and sisters in this room. I pray that you would send your Holy Spirit to fill us like you fill Daniel. Would you reveal the areas in our life where where We just need to draw the line where you have more life for us. Would you reveal what's numbing us right now? And would you help us to see how real you are so that we could say you are better and we could draw our line in joy to have more of you and not only survive the pressure of this place, but thrive as a result. Come and move in power amongst us as you did with Daniel and his friends. In your beautiful name I ask. Amen.